AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You don't just live in your home. You live in your neighborhood as well. So when you're shopping for a home, you want to know as much about the area around it as possible. Luckily, Homes.com has got you covered. Each listing features a comprehensive neighborhood guide from local experts. Everything you'd ever want to know about a neighborhood, including the number of homes for sale, transportation, local amenities, cultural attractions, unique qualities, and even things like median lot size and a noise score. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the one and only, truly legendary Steve Cropper. Steve, great to have you here. So how have you been handling COVID? <laughs> Very delicately. <laughs> okay, so have you been vaccinated yet? I have not. That is my choice. <laughs> okay. Okay, and that's your choice because... And if uh, they come up with this thing about uh, a vaccination to get on a plane, that's the day I stop flying. <laughs> okay. Okay. There's only two people on this planet, and they're not here anymore. They're in the planet. My mom and dad are the only people who tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, you have a new album. How did that come together? Well, because of this pandemic. And it came together, and now it's... It's almost over. The pandemic is almost over. But during the lockdowns. So it was John Tivin's idea to pull up these old tracks and do something with them. And they turned out great. So, And I had just written them off. Did you know Tivin before this? Oh, yeah. Known him for a long time. So all the songs we wrote together. Okay. So he approached you. And just for those out of the loop, exactly what is on the record? I wouldn't say exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you what happened. Let me tell you about the album. He has a studio in his house. I do not. I have never had a studio in my house. When I go home, I go home. I don't take my work home with me. (laughs) But uh, with the computer age, you know, you're on doing emails or whatever. And when I get up in the morning, I'm usually on the computer before 730. And today I got off at 930. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> two hours of just getting rid of stuff and and answering things. And it's fun. Okay. We got two things going up. 
What do you, who's looking for you that it takes two hours to go through your email? <laughs> Everybody that's trying to sell something. And I bet you I have deleted every morning at least 20 or 30 emails. And I try to not be subscribed to them. And I hit that and they call back. So uh, I have an old car. Just to give you an example. Okay. I bet I get three or four calls a day wanting to extend my warranty on my old car. <laughs> okay. What kind of car is it? An Infinity, a good one. Really? You see, an, Avant an Avanti, the old Studebaker. Did I hear that correctly? I could go for an old car, but it's no. It was new when I bought it. I have a 2011. My wife has a 2013. Okay. So you get all this email and phone calls that are junk calls. How many personal and business, personal business email and calls do you get? Hundreds. <laughs> and what are they looking for? Well, that's a good question. Uh, either an autograph or want me to play something. We'll do a concert or, you know, perform or whatever. And what does it take for you to say yes? A question. <laughs> do you want to do this? I always say yes. You always say yes. So guys that uh, are far more important than I am, I don't know how they deal with life. It's amazing. Because if a little guy like me gets that kind of mail, they must be getting thousands a day. <laughs> so if I emailed you for some reason, I had your email address and I asked you to play on my record, you would say yes? Well, that would depend on what the record is. I'd have to hear it first. Okay, but you're open to everybody. Absolutely. Okay. Well, that certainly gives you more opportunity, but it certainly takes you two hours to uh, get through this. And is it mostly on the computer, or how many people still call? It's mostly on a computer by email. Okay. Now you have a big birthday coming up this year, and I don't want to go too deeply into that at this moment. But what's it like having some of your best buddies pass? It's not fun. So I am one of the few lucky people on this planet. I can say that my father-in-law is my best friend. I've lost all my other friends and family. Is your father-in-law, how old is he? Same age. <laughs> okay. And what about how do you handle all your contemporaries uh, dying? Say it again, contemporary dives, is that what you said? You know, you know, your old musician friends, your old buddies who are dying. Even I'm younger than you, I'm still experiencing this. It's weird that my friends die, and it makes me <laughs> think about dying myself. Well, you try not to think about it. I try not to think about it. But, uh, you know, there's only one guy left in, uh, the, out of the original band. And uh, as far as Bucatini MGs, it would be Bucatini MG now. Because <laughs> three of the other MGs have gone. <laughs> they have since gone, been wow. gone. You know, the funny thing is these people are in plain sight, and one day they're going to disappear and everybody say, oh, I could have seen them. I could have talked to them. Right. It's really so sad. So Tivin approaches you, and he says, well, we wrote these songs together. Let's, let's lay them down. Yeah. And I said, if you want to bring these things back to life, you're going to need a singer. He says, I got one. I said, you better send me something. So he did. And when he did, I said, where's this guy been all my life? Roger Real or something else. <laughs> I never heard of him and before. So, okay, so where'd he come from? 
Well, it's up north. That's probably why I never heard of it. We never crossed paths. We should have crossed <laughs> paths somewhere down the line, but we didn't. Okay, and did you do it via the computer, or did you go to John's studio? Well, every song on this album, if you listen to it, was done. the vocal was done through an iPhone. Really? And even my engineers, yeah, which is amazing. Now, it was mixed in Pro Tools, so it was bounced down to Pro Tools, which I don't think Pro Tools didn't change anything, but it was all done with an iPhone. And it's, for the sake of the record and promotion, it's too bad because that would have been a real good uh, promotional item. But now they're into movies. You can edit your own movies just like Hollywood and all that, so let's hope they can do that. And I know that the iPhone people have been bragging about their phones or their microphones in their in their telephones for a long time. And people just took it for granted. They were more into the picture thing with selfish and so forth, which is fine. <clears throat> and people just kind of forgot that there's a real good mic in that uh, iPhone. <laughs> and then how did you lay down your guitar? Well, uh, originally it was just the rhythm tracks, mainly with a loop, and then we brought in extra drummers. Now, as far as all the solo licks, when Roger finished the vocals, I said, I'm not laying down any, any lead licks until I hear the vocal. And so I just get inspired by that. That's the way I get inspired. I, I hate working things out. I, I don't like that at all. I just don't work things out. I like the spontaneity and uh, listen to something for the first time and, and, and let uh, emotion just flow and let it go and be a channeler. I'm actually the exact same way. That's how you get inspired. So... Let's just assume the vocal is cut. You don't want to hear it until you're in the studio with the guitar strapped on, ready to play. Correct. Okay. That's the way I do it. And let's say in one song, how long is it going to take you to work out what you're going to play and lay it down? Not very long. <laughs> so we do piece things together sometimes, and I'll get hit with something and play something. And the engineer will say, that was a good lick you did three takes ago. Or if it's not complete, they'll say, let's do another one. And then we put them all together. So that's the way we do it. Same thing with vocals. Okay, so if I, if you laid down a lick and it was a half hour later and the engineer said, play that lick again, could you remember it and do it? Probably not. If you played it to me, I could <laughs> probably duplicate it. But to remember it, no. It comes and okay. goes. It comes about as fast. I mean, it goes about as fast as it comes. So there you go. <laughs> I have always approached Bob. I have always approached sessions the same way. So when we were learning a song in the old days, we learned it together at the same time, heard it for the first time. And the and the writers, we weren't there the night before. Used to, we would write songs the night before we cut them. Today, you might write a song, and it might be two years before it gets cut. You just don't know what's going to happen today. It's certainly different. Now, in the old days, we're talking about pre-internet, you would have made this record. There was a limited number of records, and everybody would have been aware of it, whether it was successful or not, depending on what was in the grooves. Today, you can put out a record, and almost nobody can know about it. Right. How, how does that affect your inspiration to do it? You just do it one at a time. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're overdubbing something or listening to something, you treat it as the only song on the planet at the time. And there's only two singers that I've ever worked with that sang a song as though it was going to be the last song they would ever sing. That was Otis well, Redding and Rod Stewart. I have to ask who that is. Otis Redding for number one, number two, Rod Stewart. Even though, and I, I refer to Rod, the fact that he knew that he would take the, 
the track home that night and change the lyrics, change the idea, whatever, knowing that for the musicians in the studio at the time, he would sing it as though he was on live on stage for the last time. I've always been wow. in that company. How'd you get hooked up with Rod Stewart? <laughs> Through Tommy Dowd. Okay. So that, of course, begs the question, how'd you know Tom Dowd? <laughs> I don't think we have a month or a year to do this. But how did I know Tom Dowd? Yeah. Uh, Atlantic was our distributor at Stacks. And he was a vice president or A&R director for a long time, then became a vice president. And okay. I've known him since 63, since let's put it that way. Okay, so right now you're in Nashville? Yeah. Okay, why Nashville? You you grew up in Memphis. You were in California for a while. You're in Nashville. Why these different places? Well, I was asked by some friends of mine to come here and write some songs, and I said no. Then I met my present wife. This June will be 30, <laughs> 32 years that I've been married to her, and I met her in this town. And I was She was up here from Dallas. She was living in Dallas, and I was living in L.A. at the time. And so I took her out to L.A. and showed her the house, and she said, I'd rather have a house in Nashville. Okay. So we've raised two kids and had a blast. <laughs> wow. It's hard to say that, that I'm in, in the music city of the world, and it's hard to say that I didn't come here for the music, but I didn't. I came <laughs> here because of, of my present wife. So was it, was it love at first sight? Absolutely. Did, did did she feel the same way, or did you have to work on uh, it? I think so. Except she tells it a little different. To, she didn't. The good news is she didn't know who I was, and she said, "Oh, another one one hit wonder." <laughs> 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 then she found out later that I had written more than one song. So, you've been married thirty years. You have two kids. What are they up to? Well, one of them is uh, has her own merchandising company. And the other one is in college, and I put him on the plane yesterday to fly back to Fort Collins. He's going to Colorado State in Fort yeah. Collins, Colorado. And he'll be home back here when school lets out, which is the end of May, I think. And how many times have you been married? Twice. And do you have kids from your first marriage? I do, older kids. And yeah. how, old, how many do you have, and how old are they? I have another boy and another girl. The boy being the oldest. And what are they up to? That's a good my my son is retired. My daughter works for Ashley Furniture. Oh wow. And are they on the payroll or uh they totally independent? Well she is and he he ran managed a bookstore for a long time. And then he decided not to. He he overmarried too. He he married a girl in Memphis that's head of the card services. And they transferred her to Atlanta. And that's where he went to college, so he's very happy to be back in Atlanta. He loves it. Okay, so you're in Nashville, and you did a lot of early work in Memphis. You grew up in Memphis. Right. Most people have not been to those places. They say, oh, it's Tennessee. Having <laughs> been to those places, I experienced them as radically different. Would okay. you say the same? The two cities? Yeah. Uh, totally musically in inclined and otherwise Memphis is a melting pot. Now Nashville gets a lot of people here too, from Kentucky and different places, but Memphis gets it all. Mississippi, Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri. <laughs> so they get a lot of, I, I entitled an album one time called melting pot. 
And that's been going on since way a long time ago when the river boats were gambling boats and so forth. Wow. Yeah, people don't realize, I mean, when you're in Memphis, you look over the river, it's Arkansas. You don't realize that it's just that close. <laughs> Never that mind Mississippi, true. just down <laughs> south. Okay, so what age were you at when you moved to Memphis? Ten years old. And where were you the ten years before that? Missouri. Some people call it misery. It's a state with three names, Missouri, <laughs> Missouri, and misery. And they say, misery, why do you call it misery? I said, obviously, you didn't grow up on a farm. <laughs> so where was this farm in misery? Well, uh, it's not too far. If you know where West Plains is and Thayer and that, those places, it's not in the boot hill. It's in the s- southern part, right in northern Arkansas or southern Missouri. The line is not too far. It's 30 miles away, I guess, something like that at the most. But it's uh, it's, it's just uh, west of the boot hill. And your father was a farmer? He was originally, yeah. And then he met my mother at Teachers College, and uh, he was a teacher, and so was my mom. The thing about me was very simple. They didn't have babysitters in those days. There was nowhere to, and we didn't have any close relatives that she could drop me off at. So she put me in school. I was <laughs> four when I started, and a month later I was five. So, you know, I started when I was five years old. The thing was, my mother told me, I don't know this to be a fact. She said, I did as good as the rest of the students. She said, I didn't really have any choice. I had to move you up. So she took me from the first grade to the second grade and on to the third grade, except she's, as a retired teacher, she stayed on the, on the teacher's board. So we moved to West Plains, which was in those days, if you were raised on a farm, that was a big town, 19 miles from the farm. And she put me back. So I took the third grade twice. <laughs> I was in the fourth grade for about three weeks. And she said, these city boys are too big for my son. So she put me back. <laughs> what kind of student were you? Uh, I did pretty good until I started playing guitar. I was a straight A student. And I spent most of my time playing the guitar instead of studying. So my grades went down a little bit. I started making C's and B's. Right. And what your parents, they were teachers. What did they say about that? They didn't like it very much, <laughs> but they never discouraged me in the guitar playing. And I remember, uh, I never, they, people would ask me, why would you think last night, which was the song that we had, number three in the world, uh, why was it such a hit? And I said, I don't know, but I do remember that my mother, the first time I played her the record, she started doing a twist. I said, well, I guess it was the first twist instrumental. That's the only thing I can credit it to. That, at that, at that, at that. So your parents were supportive. Did they understand the level of success that you achieved? I don't. Not until later, no. <laughs> and how were you? The, were you an only kid, or were there other kids in the family? I was the only one. Wow. So I, I remember the time. I do remember this. My dad came home. We were eating dinner, and he looks up and he says, "I've been transferred to Tulsa, Oklahoma. We're moving to Tulsa." And I said, I'm not. And he looked at me very sternly and said, son, you don't have a voice in this conversation. I said, yes, I do. I've got a working band making money. And he said, oh, okay. (laughs) He said, well, I've got to go. And he did. And uh, my mom stayed until I graduated from high school. And uh, they found a duplex to put me in, that sort of thing. But dad went ahead to Tulsa. He was going to put me in Oklahoma State University, Norman, Oklahoma. And... uh, 
I said, I, it, you know, but you'd be going to Oklahoma State much better than Memphis. And I said, oh, well, <laughs> I want the band. That's all I cared about. The thing is that on my entrance exam, I failed the English part, but I rated so high in the math part, they let me take the, take it over. And I did it with a, there was a girl that took it over too. There was only two of us. And she had already had two years of pre-college <laughs> and she failed it as well. And that's why she got to take it again. Of course, we passed it the second time. <laughs> so. Okay. Go ahead. No, no, you continue. Well, I was going to say that, that I got reprimanded one time for calling it Memphis State. It always was. Now it's Memphis University. And so my daughter's golf coach said, Steve, it's Memphis University. It's not Memphis State anymore. I said, it'll always be Memphis State as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> my daughter played uh, high school, uh, college of golf, came out a pretty good golfer. So how good a golfer are you? Well, I used to be pretty good. At my age, terrible. But I played with a lot of guys in their 90s and all, and I said, boy, when I grow up, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> you, don't, you don't go on the road for 50 years and bend over like you used to. So uh, people have back trouble. Everybody does. And so I waited and waited and waited to, to till I had some time off to get my back worked on. And the doctor said, Steve, I can't help you anymore. I said, what do you mean you can't help me? He said, because three and four fuse together. And I'm telling you, when you bend over, it's like having a two before in your back. I can't bend over and pick up anything anymore. I never could anybody. Well, it's funny because you're the first person who ever told me a similar story. I have back problems, too, for 50 years. Right. And I had to get an injection. I used to get them. And the guy who did the injection said, who did your surgery? Who fused <laughs> the discs? I've had any surgery. Yeah. So, uh of all people, Peter Jacobson was a pretty good friend of mine, still is. And uh, he is a, one of the chief investors in the back clinic down in Florida. And he said, if you have back trouble, I'll put you ahead of the line and you'll get in there. So <laughs> my doctor said, we can't shoot anything in there. I can't cut them apart. They fuse together. So that's what the MRI showed. And so I suffer with it. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So what? made your parents move from misery to Memphis? I th well, it had to be my dad getting a job. He was on, uh, we moved from the farm to West Plains, Missouri, because right. he was on the police force. Filled out an application of the railroad and, and got picked up as a de railroad detective immediately. <laughs> and that's when we went to Memphis. And I remember uh, right before we crossed the Mississippi, my dad, I was asleep in the back seat. My dad wiggled me up and he said, uh, Son, you better get up. You might want to see this. And it was a river a mile wide. <laughs> you know, I grew up on rivers and streams. I never seen anything that big in my life. It's amazing. So your father was a teacher. Then he was a railroad cop. Yeah. And then he was a teacher. He worked directly again. with the FBI for years. Really? Yeah. On the good side. <laughs> what kind of relationship did you have with your dad? Very good relationship. And, uh, I never met anybody that ever said anything negative about my dad. And everybody really liked my dad. He was just nice to everybody. And uh, I didn't even know my dad had a sense of humor. But when the when some of the boys would come over <laughs> from, from high school and all, he would start telling jokes. And I said, I didn't know my dad could do that. He'd have everybody in stitches. And that's just the way he was, you know. But he was also very serious. He had a serious side. As he got older... 
uh, he could have made a lot of changes and things, but he didn't. He didn't. He didn't butt into anything. He just sat back and listened. So, so you moved to Memphis at age ten. That's a hard transition for a kid to go from one school to another, making <laughs> yeah. friends, etc. Yeah, it's like going to Disney World for the first time. So what was it like for you? Pretty amazing. I mean, everything that I looked at and saw or heard was a, was a shock treatment, and I just dealt with it. And uh, we were talking about best friends. Donald Duck Dunn and I met on a softball field when, in the sixth grade. So we were I was well in the 10th or 11th. We were sophomores or juniors when we started the band. And we got real good in our sophomore year, and we were doing proms and, you know, local stuff. And it's very simple. We played music of the day that kids could dance to. We played a lot of dances, sock hops and dances and proms and so forth. And uh, we played the music that they could dance to. Obviously, they couldn't afford the real artists. It's too expensive for them. Even in those days, it was expensive. Today, I don't know how they deal with it. It's amazing. I know what we make as a Blues Brothers. I know what we make as a band. And there's a there's a ceiling, and there's a we don't go any lower than a certain price, even on an off night. It's going to cost you this much. Well, when you do that, you know the the artist is one thing. Then you got to deal with the back line and all that. If you can get it donated, that's great. If you can't, <laughs> you got to shell it out. So that eats into your profits. And I, I would never be a promoter. There's no way. <laughs> Listen. It's a license to lose all your money. It's just crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, yes. Okay, so you're in Memphis. At what point do you start playing the guitar? About around 14. And what's the inspiration? That's a good question. I really don't know. I guess radio, hearing, hearing the radio and seeing people happy and dancing and all that kind of stuff. And that's what this record is all about, too. Fired up, it's all about fired up and get to, get to dancing again. Feel good music. I'm 12 years younger than you, and in my generation, people picked up the guitar to play folk songs in the early 60s, and then the Beatles hit everybody got an electric guitar. Yeah. When you were starting, what was on the radio? What was the inspiration that made you want to play music? Well, uh, that's a good question, but I first heard gospel at that age, and that blew me away. I had never heard gospel music before, just happy, good-feeling music. So I think I'm guilty of taking uh, gospel grooves and turning it into, you know, lyrically love songs, basically, or different things like that. So you're 14, you get a guitar. What guitar do you get? Uh, I found one that I liked out of a Sears and Roebuck catalog. A silver tone? That's silver tone. <laughs> flat top, sunburst, round hole flat top. Did you have one where the case had the amplifier in it? No. <laughs> that was a big thing in the 60s. But my dad, bless his heart, and I told you he never discouraged me. He said, son, you learn how to play that, and I'll buy you a good guitar. Wow. Well, he bought my first electric guitar from a guy who had one for sale. <laughs> and the amp came with it, and I still have that amp today. Well, I don't have that amp anymore. It's at Smithsonian. But the Okay. What was the guitar, and what was the amp? Uh, the guitar was a Birdland cutaway or, uh, no, it wasn't a Birdland. It was a 175. I got the Birdland later. Uh, it was a 125 trapeze bridge, thin, bo thin body, sharp cutaway, sunburst. And the amp was a Fender Harvard. Wow. That really and goes that was back. on green onions. That was on green onions and a bunch of Otis Redding and a bunch of other things. 
And when I wanted that sound, I always pulled that amp out. And I, I still have it today or had it until I gave it to Smithsonian a few years ago. Okay, so there's the Harvard and the Princeton. The, the difference is the Princeton has reverb. Is that it or reverse? Well, I don't own a Princeton. I've used it to tune up with backstage when they have one, but uh, I've never owned one. The, the Fender Harvard, I've owned uh, three since then. None of them sound like this one that I had. I don't know what the – I knew the difference in the sound, but it, the quality was just un, unbelievable. And uh, Tom Dow, we mentioned earlier, he always wanted me to take that on the road. I said, Tommy, it doesn't put out enough. He said, just mic it and run it through the sound system. <laughs> I never did do that, but I could have. So – Certainly back in the 60s and 70s when I was into it, you'd go to the guitar shop. Even if it was the same model, they all sounded different. Was that your experience then, and is that your experience still today? Well, I think so. I will tell a quick story, and this I love the story. And it was validated. I did a podcast, too, for a while. And... uh the guy I was interviewing said, uh, you know, I've told you a story about Chet Atkins. He said, I was the owner of that guitar shop. So <laughs> he said, Chet used to come around and look at the guitars on the wall and all that. He pulled one down and started playing it. <laughs> so this kid comes running up and said, man, that's a great sound of guitar. And Chet takes it, hangs it back on the wall. He says, how's the sound now? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good story. That's a good story. I love that one. That, that blows me away. <laughs> I wouldn't have had guts enough to do the how's it sound now. <laughs> I guess not. if he'd have said, if he'd have come up and said, man, you're a great guitar player, that would have been a different answer. But he said, man, that's a great sound of guitar. He says, how's it sound now? And I, I got to meet Chet a few times. And uh, I figured you'd get around to ask me, you hadn't asked me yet, who, my, who were my influences? I listened to Les Paul and Chet Atkins like everybody else did. And I said, the world doesn't need another Les Paul or Atkins, or B.B. King, or none of those guys. So I sort of patterned what I did after a guy named Loman Paulin, who was the leader and guitar player for the Five Royals. And that's the music I grew up on dancing to. I think a lot of people today don't even know who the Five Royals were. Not. And uh, Betty LeVette, who was on the, on the dedicated album, she said she dated Loman's brother, and they wow. always wanted to be the Royals. I go, okay, be the Royals. That's sort of like the Royals. Sounds like a sports team. But if you say Royals, that's big. That's enormous. It's just spell, it's spelled the same but pronounced a little bit different. The Royals. Yeah, man. <laughs> I hear from her all, all the time. I'll have to ask her about that story. So, okay, you're playing in the band. When you play in the – okay, you're 14 when you get a guitar. When do you start forming the band? Uh, let's see. 14 is – when I was about 16. And how did that come together? Did you say me? Well, uh, there was another guy in school, Charlie Freeman, Charles Freeman, who was more into jazz than I was. But he was taking guitar lessons, and I wasn't. My family couldn't afford guitar lessons. So when he, his mom would pick him up at school on the day he had his lessons, <laughs> I would run home and get my guitar and be sitting on his front porch whenever he got home from his lesson. And he would show me what he learned that day, and I would stay and play behind him so he could practice what he had learned. And that seemed to work out pretty good. He went on to further his career in jazz and all. And uh, there was a guy named Macy Skipper who had a jazz band. And I th don't know where Macy was from. I think he was from Arkansas, but I'm not real sure. 
And uh, I, I remember Charlie went off with him, and uh, they did a tour up in Canada and a bunch of places. And uh, he was the other guitar player in the Marquees. So we always had, if one of us couldn't make it, it didn't matter, you know. <laughs> but he played with us at the, in clubs and so forth. Now, how, how much did you practice? Were you one of those guys sitting in your bedroom for hours working it out? No. No, I wish I had it, but I didn't. I still, today, I come off the road, I put it in the corner, and I pick it back up and we go back on the road again. <laughs> it's kind of a silly way to look at things, but I never did. Uh, and as I'm self-taught, and I learn by doing. You learn in the studio. So can you read music? Not at all. Not enough to hurt my plan. <laughs> <laughs> Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store, clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah. Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. So you're playing in the marquees. How do you end up make? How do you end up recording? Uh, I guess because we, I was known for the dance songs and all that sort of stuff. And I remember the first session I did at Sun. Scotty Moore had me come in and double an upright bass, and that's when the transition was happening in recording. And uh, for those who could afford a Fender, it sounded like you're playing with a pick. So I've overdubbed the. Uh, the baritone guitar, Dan Electro baritone that I played with a pick, just like a guitar, six string. And it, it wasn't a bass guitar. It was a baritone guitar. So it was an octave below a guitar. But it was, you could get it low and really pop the uh, upright bass. So, you know, the upright bass goes doom, doom, doom. And you play with a pick and double it and get it right. And it sounds like an old Fender. Well, well wait a second here. You're in Memphis. You're playing in a high school band. Right. How do you end up knowing Scotty Moore and recording his son? <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's a, I don't know. That's weird. 
I got I got a call. That's all I know. And I remember uh, the first time I got called to play a session, I asked Chips Bowman. I knew, you know, he was the engineer at Stacks and whatever, helping Jim Stewart. And I said, Chips, I've been asked to uh, play on a session what I play. And he said, just play what you feel. If they don't like it, they'll tell you they don't like it. And they ask you to play what they want when I hear you play. Otherwise, he said, if they like it, they'll just, you just keep playing what you're playing. And that's what I did. And I'll always give them the credit for teaching me about the unwound G string. You can bend it better. Because all guitar strings in those days, and uh, the best ones were the Gibson Sonomatics, and they came with a wound G string. And that was very, very hard to bend. I mean, it was very, extremely hard to bend. But you could do it. And, uh, you know, when I started using, a, we used a B string in those days because you couldn't buy gauge strings. <laughs> wow, that, those are that was a big breakthrough when they had the lighter gauge strings, that's for sure. Yep. So you go to Scotty Moore. When do you start recording as the Marquis? Wow. Well, <laughs> Charles Axon came to me one day and he said, I understand you have a good band. I said, well, I'd like to think so. But, you know, he said, I want to be in your band. I said, you do? What do you play? He said, saxophone. I said, how long have you been playing? He said, man, I've been taking lessons for three months. Oh, wow. <laughs> and somewhere in that conversation, he said his uncle owned a recording studio. That was Jim Stewart. I went, well, okay, can you show up for rehearsal this Saturday? <laughs> Come to find out, Jim had some recording equipment in his garage in North Memphis. But he had built a little sound booth, I guess, put the singer, isolate the singer, put some carpet down on the concrete, and that's what he called the studio. So the first studio that was, it was still satellite. It wasn't stacks yet. was in Brunswick, Tennessee, about 10 miles out of town. Not very, you know, 20, 25 minute ride out there. And then Chips came to Jim and said, Jim, there's this Capitol Theater building, an old uh, movie theater that's up for lease. And I think we can get it if you, if you want it. And he, Jim didn't have the money. So he goes to Estelle and Estelle says, Estelle Action. So Stuart, Jim Stuart, S-T, and Axon, A-X, S-T-A-X. That's how they come up with stacks. But anyway, uh, she said, I'll lend you the money. I'll mortgage my home and lend you the money, but you're going to have to give me a record shop. And that's where Satellite Records came came to pass. And so there was nothing uh, legally wrong with having Satellite Records. But you couldn't have a, a record out that was Satellite Label because he got a a cease and desist uh, letter from uh, some lawyers in California said that, you know, a satellite records already exist, but a satellite record shop didn't matter. So it stayed the same. And uh, we had to go uh, change the label from satellite to stacks. And then, uh, like all record companies, stacks had a subsidiary, Volt. So Green Onions came out on Volt 102. So I'm told, I don't know, I wasn't there on the other end of the line for this one, but they said that uh, we don't have time to promote a new label because you had Atlantic, Atco, you know, and every every big label had an had a alternative label so they could put out more records. And they said, we don't have time to promote a new label. Get that thing on Stacks. So it came out on Stacks 126 or something originally. Green Onions did. Okay. If Green Onion was number 102 on Volt, do you remember what was 101? No, I don't. <laughs> Probably Charles Hines or Nick Charles, one or the other. I can't remember. Okay, so you're in, you're in, you know, your house. How far was your house from downtown Memphis? Uh, about 25 minutes. Okay. So was it the Memphis School District, though? 
Oh, yeah. Okay. So, Stuart goes into the movie studio, a movie theater. Do you help build it, build it since you're there at the ground floor? Well, let's, I don't want to say I helped build it, but when they took the seats out of it, a lot of the bolts didn't come up from the concrete. So, I remember Packy Axton, Charles Axton, and myself, we'd take a hammer and knock them back down into the concrete. That's what we did. Or if they were long enough, we'd break them off, get them going back and forth until they got hot and broke up. <laughs> Okay, needless to say, the original stacks was torn down. Now there's a museum that tries to replicate the feel. But what always blew my mind was the floor wasn't flat. No, it was angled. <laughs> so what was that like making all these records? And it's the same exact angle today it was then. What happened was some guys came in the day before they tore it down. They wanted me to remember everything I could remember about stacks. When they went to uh, look at it, even though it was leveled, the guy never did build it back. The uh, existing blueprints were still on file downtown. So they didn't need my, what I remembered at all. I remember colors and stuff, but uh, the angle of the floor is exactly the same. The facade out front is exactly the same. Everything is exactly the same, except some of it is now a museum. Okay. But I know it's where you worked all the time, but either one leg was higher than the other. Oh, your toes, your heels were higher. Were you aware of that when you were working there? No, you didn't deal with that. It was just the singer was up the top and the horns were down at the bottom. And the piano was down there and the drum riser. I remember the drum riser, we had to build a little off angle. So the floor of the drums was flat, the drum riser. And it was only uh, guarded on two sides instead of four. It was more of a, just an L thing to isolate it. And I remember a, a piano note broke one time, one of the strings, and it stuck in the baffle behind the bass player. Whoa, that was scary. If it had hit him, that would have been the end of that, you know, but it broke him. I would never will forget that. That was pretty scary. <laughs> okay, so you make the record as the marquees. Jim Stewart opens up uh, the big recording studio in the movie theater. How you end up? How do you end up getting integrated into that? Uh, I don't know, but I do know this, that, uh, Jim Stewart hated the band. Estelle loved the band. Why? Because her son played saxophone in the band. <laughs> right. So she kept pushing Jim to record them. And we recorded out in Brunswick one time and I still have those tapes. It's pretty bad. <laughs> pretty amateurish. Uh, the song last night was written by, uh, a, a lot of guys, but the, the initial riff was written by, Jerry Lee Smoochie Smith, a piano player in Chips Bowman's band. And they were already, they were older than we were and uh, already had a, a big gig at one of the big clubs. I think they were playing the Vapors or somewhere like that. But anyway, uh, so Smoochie was on that session. Chips Bowman engineered it. And we called the band and I wanted Duck to play bass on it. And they say I wasn't on a record because there's no guitar on a record. However, I am on it. I'm playing the whole note on the organ when Smoochie takes his organ solo. Two different, two different solos on the record. So the night before, the evening, afternoon before they recorded it, that was a Friday afternoon, they recorded it on a Saturday. Packy and I came up with a da-da, da-da. And I, don't, I didn't come up with that whole note on the intro. So that was something the horns came up with later. Maybe it was Packy's idea, I don't know. I never did ask. Uh, da, 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 da. it was my idea to do the drum roll 
So we had uh, the drummer from uh, the Plantation Inn playing, and during the show, he would throw away his sticks and play with his hands, and people love that, play the drums like conga drums. And I said, you know that thing you do, that little showpiece you do where you do with your hands? He said, yeah. I said, can you do that same lick with sticks? He used to like this, and he played it, and I said, that's it, and that was the intro. <laughs> we don't know where things come from. They just fall out of the ceiling, and you go for it. <laughs> just be a good channeler. <laughs> okay, or so handler. he records the marquees, but then you personally get integrated into the Stax operation. Right, and I do remember the first session I played at Stax. And uh, like all guitar players, they want to be engineers. I don't know why. It's just one of those things, especially in Memphis. That's why, Scotty, the the combination of myself going down and playing on Scotty's session, he wanted to be an engineer, and he engineered it. The other thing uh, that, uh, like when Green Onions came around, I knew it was pretty groovy. It had no title yet. It was just tracks. And uh, had the singer that we were there to record showed up that day, and we heard later that he did show up at the record shop, but he had sang all night the night before. This was on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, he didn't have any voice. And uh, so he never came back in the studio. So we were just playing around, keeping our chops up. And Jim hit the record button because he was ready to record. And uh, he said, guys, come up and listen to this. You recorded that? I said, yeah. So we come up, we listened to it. He said, if we decide to put something like this out, do you have anything else you could put on the flip side? In those days, it was the A side and B side. So we just were dumbfounded. We said, we didn't have anything. And I got to thinking, I said, Booker, you remember you played me a riff about two weeks ago you thought would be really good for a vocal song. He said, I don't remember, but come down to the organ. I'll play a couple of riffs. You tell me if that's it. And he played the Green Angels. I said, that's the one right there. <laughs> so well, how long did it take to record Green Onions? Third take. And did you know what you had? No, I just knew it was good. I knew it was danceable. And so I took it to Scotty Moore, who at that time was running the lathe. And uh, Elvis's contract was, Sam had already sold Elvis's contract, had a lot of money. So he bought a lathe. That was very much unheard of. All the mastering came out of Nashville, out of where we're sitting now, in, in the same studio uh, in those days. And uh, I don't think this building was built until 64. So that was a year after. We had uh, Green Onions in 62, I think it was. But it was mastered up here. And uh, Chips, I remember, wanted me to play on a session. He wanted to engineer it. And it was Prince Connolly, I'm Going Home, was, was the title of the song. Chip showed it to me on guitar, and I duplicated it, played it. And that was my first session at Stacks. Okay, back at that level, was it one or two track? Mono, yeah. Mono. So... Was there any, you know, they laid it down. Were there, was there any so-called mixing, any effects added after? No. Just the way it was recorded. In those days, you mixed a song the way it was going to be sounding on the record, basically. It, the engineer tried to do that since it was mono. So any echo and any effects had to be done at the time. So Green Onions is cut. How long after you cut it does it hit the market? Well, that's a good question. I don't remember the. Could have been more than a than a month, several weeks, I guess. And do you remember the first time you heard it on the radio? No, but I do. Green onions. <laughs> I was there. That's why I know. But uh, 
And all I had was that dub that uh, that Scotty had made me. And I took it to a friend of mine, Reuben Washington on WLOK, had the drive time. And the reason I used to go there, my wife at the time was working for Sealy Mattress Company. I'd drop her off at her gig at 7 o'clock, and I'd be at, at the radio station by 7.20 or whatever. And I always got in. Reuben and I were really good friends. And so that's the way it got started. And I said, I want you to hear something we cut Sunday. I had uh, Scott, this was on a Tuesday morning. And I had, I said, I had Scotty cut me a little dub on this thing yesterday. So tell me what you think. He's a disc jockey, so he would know. And he plays the intro at about two bars and stops it and backs it up. And I said, well, you don't like it? And he said, no, it's good. I just want to make sure I heard what I heard. I said, okay. What I didn't know, he put it out on the air and the phones lit up while it was playing. <laughs> That's how that record got broke by playing it on the, on the radio. <laughs> People call in and said, I don't know what it is. He said, I don't know what it is, but we're going to find out. And then the phone rang again. I don't know what it is, but we're going to find out. <laughs> and it becomes a national hit. And you're a young guy. What is that experience like? Well, it's overwhelming, but it's all your dreams come, come together real quickly. So everything you thought about happens very quickly. And we were in such demand. It was amazing. And I... The thing with Green Onions, I already had experienced that with the last night. We did a, a tour of the United States that Atlantic uh, sort of fathered or whatever. And we did Dick Clark. We were on Dick Clark. And uh, unfortunately, that's one of the uh, tapes that got erased before you oh. could get a, get a judge to give him a – don't do that. They were taking all of his old kidioscopes and destroying them because they wanted to make more room. So Dick Clark himself, in those days, he finally got uh, a judge to rule it and to make him stop. So, and I went to, he was a friend of mine. I went to Dick and I said, do you still have the uh, a, a tape of uh, the Marquis and we were on your show? He said, no, Steve, that was one of the ones that got destroyed. Let's <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> so there's no record of it. And uh, I th I th there may be one up in Canada because there's a TV show we did up there one time. Okay. That was the 60s. Through the lens of today, everybody would ask, the first question they would ask, and I'm not saying it's right, but it's the first question they would ask would be about the money. So, did you ever make any money on Green Onions? Absolutely. Still do today, but that was not why we cut it. <laughs> <laughs> That was not why I picked up the guitar was to make money. I mean, if, if you're good at what you do, you're going to make money out of it, I think. And if you don't, you just keep going until you do. Okay. couple of questions here. You were going to Memphis State. Did you graduate from Memphis State? No, I went two years and we had green onions, so I quit. I said I can always go back, and I never went back. And what did your parents say when you quit? I guess he knows what knows what he's doing, because <laughs> I convinced him I was going to go back whenever all this was over, and it never did stop. Okay, so Green Onions, you tell the story, you go to the radio station, you talk about a woman. Were you married to her at that point? Uh, yeah. When the Green Onions was done. Okay, well, let's be honest here. All your dreams come true. You go on the road with a hit record. You know, there's a lot of perks of being on the road. You taking advantage of the perks? Nah, I don't know. That was not, again, that was not a purpose. Maybe we did. It was influenced by some of them. But uh, that was not the real reason we did it. 
Okay, so there wasn't a lot of womanizing and drugging out there? No, not at all. Not with that band. Okay, let's go back to Memphis at this time. What was it like between the races in the 50s and 60s? (laughs) Well, basically, there was no color in those days. Now, when you read the history books, it says Memphis was the most segregated town in the South. And it might have been, I don't know, but it was something we all just took for granted. I didn't look at Booker or anybody being any different color than I was. That's not why we did it. We were all there at Stacks as a team and working as a team. And it seemed like everybody in Memphis was working as a team because Memphis was the most, was credited with being the most beautiful city in the United States for about eight years in a row. And I remember uh, doing something in school. I made a little wishing well and whatever, and it got first place from the Kiwanis Club. So there was, and I have said this over and over, there was never any color that I knew of at Stax. There might have been later some division, but not, not while we were making all those records and all. That came later. It came after Martin Luther King was assassinated. So... Okay, what the day that he was assassinated, what was it like being in Memphis? I wasn't. I was in San Francisco. <laughs> the whole band had gone out there a day early to play at the Fillmore West. And I think we were supposed to be on the same show with uh, Donna Ross and the Supremes, who never got on the plane in Detroit when they heard about it. We were already out there. Did the show play? Oh, yeah. Now, there's a there's a small story that uh, Bill Graham came to me. I went to the restroom, and Bill Graham came in there behind me, and he said, Steve, I'm going to have to send you guys back to Memphis. We have not sold a ticket since we heard about that today. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I'm going to take you. He said, I'll take care of you, but I can't pay you what I promised you. I'll pay you, but I'll get you back to Memphis. And, uh, you know, he had a deal with the Jack Tar Motel or hotel, whatever it was. I've stayed at the Jack Tar. <laughs> And <laughs> you stayed there In just off of Highway 100. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Bill Graham always, uh, to get off of that story a little bit, I- I'll get back to it. Uh, Otis, when he did Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, Bill Graham always offered the Jack Tar Hotel or his boathouse at Sausalita. And Otis decided to stay in the boathouse. And that was validated by Neil Young. We were out th- with him in 93. He was reading a book. So anyway... Uh, we get, we get back to the hotel, a motel, and we get a call from the guys at the Fillmore, and they said, get your butts back down here as soon as you can. There is a line around the block. So we drive back down there, and sure enough, there was a line all the way around the block. Everybody wanted to get in to hear the Booker T and the MGs. <laughs> but there was a period during that day that zero, it just went to zero, nothing. So anyway, we had a great show that note, night, and I think uh, one of the bands, Mothers of Invention was on there, I think. And uh, I don't even know who else played that night. But we were minus the Supremes. Maybe they had a local band play. I don't know. I don't remember. We played there so many times. Right. So you go back to Memphis. What's the vibe in Memphis? Pretty ugly. (laughs) So things had changed. I can tell you that the only building left standing in that block where Stax was, was Stax. Wow. That was the only one they didn't torch. The bakery got it. All the other place, all the other buildings, the, the sandwich shop across the street, the bakery, all those places, the filling station, everything was torched. The liquor store, everything except stacks. So it is what it is. Okay, 
Now, today, Beale Street is just a tourist trap. Was Beale Street already over by the time you came of age? Or was it still no, happening? It was still happening. And what was it like? Now, some of the streets were renamed, like Rufus Thomas Boulevard and so forth, and they started doing that. And uh, the uh, music notes with people's name on it came way late. I don't know when they started that, but, uh, you know, they're still doing it as far as I know. So would you go hang out there and go to the uh, go to the clubs? No, uh, what we did when I was in high school, we used to drag that place. In other words, we'd we'd go by the Hippodrome and places like that and roll the windows down and drive real slow so we could hear Ray Charles's music or whenever they came to town, James Brown or B.B., whoever was performing, and we could hear it. So that was a place that you went to the pawn shops on Saturday and you looked through the window and you went, oh, you're just dreaming at, at those guitars and stuff and say, man, I'd like to own one of those one these days, so. It was a, a wish factory, basically. And there were still guys on the corner selling pencils and doing their thing. And it was a great place to hang out. And what about the juke joints? You know, I've been through Memphis and people have pointed them out. But was that a factor, something you were aware of back then? No. Uh, the Hippodrome I named. Uh, the Handy Club was another one. Uh, Curry's Tropicana was way outside. The, it wasn't outside the city, but it was away from Bill Street. And uh, I don't remember very many clubs being down on Bill Street. The Lansky Brothers was there where Elvis bought his suits, and the MGs did too. But that was, Elvis was earlier, way before us. Right. Okay. Were you ever bothered that it was Booker T and the MGs that your name wasn't in the band? No, none whatsoever. So uh, when Jim found out what had happened that day and, Mrs. Axton, I walked into the record shop, you know, just my normal gig at nine o'clock. I had to be there by nine. She said, there's a lot going on. I bet you're responsible. And I said, I held up the dub. I said, you're not talking about this, are you? The phone was ringing off the wall before I got there. What did I just hear on the radio today? I want to buy it. Nobody knew what it was. So Estelle called Jim and he was working at the bank, still working at the bank. She said, when you take your lunch break, you better get down to the studio because there's something going on you need to know about. So when he was told what was going on, he said, we got to get the guys in for an emergency session. We got to come up with a name for the song and a name for the group. And that's what we did. Everybody was there, Louis Steinberg and Al Jackson, Booker T, and myself. Okay, then how'd you come up with the names? What, Green Onions or Booker T? Both. <laughs> Booker came up because Booker, it was a Booker thing. Booker came up with that idea with, you know, even though we all shared in the writers of it, we did. but. uh Louis Steinberg, the bass player, said, let's name it Onions. Why would you want to name it Onions? He said, because that's the stankingest music I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> so I, I said, okay, Onions is fine, but think about the negative side of Onions. Sometimes Onions make people cry. It gives other people indigestion. I said, what about Green Onions? And they said, ah, good idea. So it became Green Onions. Okay, so the record is a smash. You go on the road. Now you're back at Stacks. And you're coming back in with a hit under your uh, under your arm. How do you become integrated in the scene and working uh, with Stax as both an A and R guy and in the studio? Well, I'm going to tell my side of the story, which I know to be the truth. <laughs> Jim Stewart can rebuttal it if he wants to, rebuke it or whatever he's called it. So uh, we have been very lucky at Stax with instrumentals. 
So they wanted to know all the instrumentals that I had. They never even asked me. I've been writing lyrics to songs since I was 14. Not one time did they ever say, have you got any songs, Steve? No, not one. So I go to Jim Stewart's favorite artist, Carla Thomas. And I said, Carla came to the record shop. I said, Carla, can you come back in the back? I've got an idea for a song I think you're going to love. It was no time to lose. <laughs> and she said, Steve, that's great. So she went to Jim and said, Jim, this Steve's got a great song. I want to cut it. He said, okay, if you want to cut it, we'll cut it. And I started, he said, let me see the lyrics. I had no time to, in two, oh, L-O-O-S-E, no time to loose. <laughs> so I don't think I ever could spell. I still can't spell. <laughs> <laughs> but I know how to spell lose now. And uh, so they cut it. That was the biggest money-making record she had had since G Whiz. Now, they had tried to come up with, you know, follow-ups and all, and had, had not done very well with it. But No Time to Lose, they played it on the radio, and it sold some records and had a little income on it. So that's pretty good. Okay, the songs that you wrote, who owned the publishing then and who owns it now? Well, uh, the original Masters, Universal, owns it. That's the record, and, but the song. But it was originally, the song was uh, East Memphis Music. Now, you know, everything reverts back. Right, I'll tell you who right. owns it now, owns my share of the publishing. And I came in one day, I told my wife, I said, I'm getting ready to sell something I've never owned. And that's <laughs> the publishing. <laughs> so Primary Wave in New York owns it. I see. So what'd you do with the money? Well, I say about the money, they say, you must have made a fortune. I said, well, no, but it keeps me in golf balls and fishing lures. <laughs> it's always, you know, you never know what you're going to do with the money. Okay, so now you have a success with Carla Thomas. Jim Stewart must be pretty impressed. I think so. He finally got around to asking me, did I have any more songs? <laughs> of course, I had a bunch. <laughs> we kept coming up with them and, and hitting and so forth. So, uh Wilson and I wrote uh, "Midnight in the Midnight Hour," and uh, there's a whole story behind that song. And whoa, then, whoa, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa. Al, Al tell Bell. the story. Wait, wait, tell the story. Okay, I didn't know who Wilson Pickett was at all, and so Mrs. Axon said, "I think he sang on some gospel songs." So we're playing him, and he says, "Oh, I'm see my Jesus in the midnight hour." Whoa, I want to wait till the midnight hour. I said, "That's that guy's label. He's midnight hour," and he wrote, "I'm gonna wait till the midnight hour to take my girl out." You know, that basically. And when there's nobody else, no one else around, just you and I in the midnight hour. So came out to be a pretty good idea. I would say, even though we split them, he wrote most of uh, Don't Fight It, You Got to Feel It. And then I came up with I'm Not Tired. Doom, da, doom, da, doom, da, doom. It's just an old gospel groove is all that is. So we wrote three songs that night, cut all three the next day. All three were chart records. <laughs> Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Okay. Were most of your songs written in collaboration like that? All of them. All, All of them. except I can remember one that wasn't for the Marquis. <laughs> Everything, I, I love to collaborate. That's the only, only way I like to do it because it doesn't matter what percentage of something somebody writes. It does if you, if three people write it, it's 33 or a third. If four people write it, it's 25%. <laughs> Just divide it that way. Pretty simple. And uh, Jim Jim made a decision that I don't think any studio ever made. If you played on it, you got a part writers on it, on instrumentals. Wow. Not the vocal songs. 
That was up to the writers that wrote the song and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and if the writer wanted to share it with the artist, that's fine. But he did not. It wasn't an automatic thing. On instrumentals, it was definitely automatic. So, if you needed a song, would you schedule the equivalent of a writing session, or would you have a recording session and work it out in the studio? No, nah, well, we worked it out in the studio a lot of times, but most of the songs were written the night before. So most of the artists that had, uh, you know, a recording session lined up, they would fly in the day before. That night we would get together and write, and this is what I want you to sing, and we'd find the keys and that kind of thing. So then we'd show it to the band the next morning, starting around uh, 11, I think most of the sessions started, and ended by 5. Sometimes they ended earlier, but they always started no later than 11 o'clock, 1045, 11 o'clock. They were ready to go. And uh, we would show them what we'd written, and they would come up. A lot of a lot of the things were hit arranged, a lot of the stuff. Maybe some of it, probably Al Jackson should have got some writers on some of the songs that he did because he set the groove for everybody. Everybody listened to Al Jackson. He was a drummer. He set the tone for it. So he was doing okay with, with uh, Booker T and EMGs. He got, uh, you know, 25% of that. So if you really think about it, half goes to the publisher and half goes to the writer. So that half, that 50% gets divided. That means that the MGs made 12.5% of every song that we ever had. (laughs) Not 25%, but 25% of 50% is 12 and whatever it is. Yeah. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Midnight Hour, as big as Green Onions was, it was an instrumental, it was in its own category. 
But in the midnight hour, there was not a band alive, and this is after the Beatles hit, that did not play in the midnight hour. Correct. Did you realize the success of that record? Nah, a little bit, yeah. <laughs> and I used to get asked, how many versions of In the Midnight Hour was there? I said, I don't know, but I've been paid on over 150 <laughs> worldwide. So do you get intimidated? Do you feel, well, I had this gigantic hit. I might not be able to make another one? No. I know I should have, but I didn't. And uh, let me tell you a quick story. Yep. Eddie Floyd and I were put together by Al Bell. He said, I've got this friend of mine who's an artist and songwriter. I know you guys will hit it off. So I go to Washington, D.C., and I meet Eddie Floyd. And we wrote three or four songs that week. And uh, so he and I are in the, in the uh, we had written six three four five seven eight nine for Wilson coming in. <laughs> and uh, on his record, Knock on Wood, I said, uh, we knew we had a good song. You know, you don't think of ever being, you think of maybe as being a hit, but we knew we had a good song. Could not come up with an intro. And after about an hour of that, I said, Eddie, I wonder what in the midnight hour would sound like backwards. He said, I don't know, play it. So I played it backwards. <laughs> it starts on a D, goes D, B, A, G, E, A. <laughs> so I started on E, G, B, A, B, D, B, D, same thing. So I tell people in my show, follow the dots. You want to know how to write songs? It's real simple. Just follow the dots. Well, you're mentioning <laughs> one thing that people don't admit. You'd really, people, you may not know exactly what will be a hit, but you know when you do something great, you can feel it's different from the rest of stuff. Well, you, you feel that it's good. It's better than other things that you've had. Yeah. That much, I don't know if it's about greatness, but I, I tell us also that whenever uh, we had a recording session, if we had three songs on the session, they all got treated with the same energy. And we didn't know which one was a hit. Maybe the writers did, <laughs> felt like this was better than something else they had. But uh, as far as the backing band, the session band, we treated them all with the same inflection. We treated uh, Soul Man exactly the same as we did the other songs on the, on the date. Same thing with Otis and stuff and all that. We didn't know what was a hit until you just pressed and released and put out there. Then you know for sure if you have a hit or not. The difference in Otis Redding is he had 17 in a row from These Arms of Mine. Now, a lot of guys can't follow up, but Otis had, as far as R&B is concerned, as far as generating enough income to say that was a hit, he had 17 in a row. But he started off as the road guy. He wasn't even the singer. No, he was the singer in the band when he showed up at Stacks. And Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers. The thing is that we were there to record Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers, who already come off of a hit called Love Twist. They couldn't come up with a follow-up. So it was Joe Gawker to Jerry Wexler's idea to send them to Memphis. Maybe they can come up with something because they're, really, they, they, they're good at doing instrumentals. So when Otis, he wanted me to hear him saying, he went, he went to Al Jackson first, and Al said, you know that big tall guy that came up driving the car? And I thought he was a roadie. And so that's probably where you got that from. Right. But he was a singer. And they told me later that uh, uh, some something happened with Johnny Jenkins, and he didn't have a light driver's license at the time. And so he didn't want to get caught driving a car without a license. So he had Otis drive. 
So Otis gets out, out of the car. We watch them pull in front of us. We're standing outside of the studio waiting for the session to happen. And they showed up, and he pulled on down, and he gets out, unlocks the trunk, and starts carrying in mics and stuff. And I said, man, we got mics inside. You don't need to bring those mics in. He set up like it was a gig, right? I said, bring Johnny's guitar and the amps, whatever you want. But I said, you don't need, need those mics. Put them back in the trunk. And that's what he did. So I thought he was a roadie. So he comes to Al Jackson. And Al said, you know that guy that was come up driving the car, the big tall guy? And I said, yeah. And he said, he wants you to hear him saying, I've already told him you only hold auditions on Saturdays. Probably the chance of you hearing him saying won't happen. So at the end of the session, Jim Stewart sent everybody home early. He said, why don't we just take off and start again tomorrow, guys? So we did that. And we're back in the back listening to stuff. And Al comes to me and he said, you know, I told you earlier about this guy. Wanted you to hear Wanted you to hear him saying? I said, yeah. He said, he's driving me nuts. Can you just take five seconds out of your time and get this guy off of my back? I said, okay. Bring him down to the piano. He brings him down, and I said, okay, sing something. He said, I don't I don't play piano. I play a little guitar. I don't play piano. He said, give me some of them church quads. you play piano? I said, not enough just to write with. And he said, play me some of them church quads. And he's talking about six, eight trips. That, that, that. He starts, these arms of mine. I went, whoa. The hair of my arm literally stood up. I said, stop it right there. He said, you don't like it? I said, man, I love it, but I want Jim Stewart to hear this. So I go, I knew I would get fired if Jim just <laughs> brushed me off and said, no, Steve, I'm not doing it. He said, I said, Jim, you got to come out and hear this guy saying you're going to die. So he did. He heard it. He said, we got to get this down on tape. Call the guys back. So Duck had to remind me in Tokyo one time, the two days before he passed away, that I came running out of the studio and he was putting his bass in the trunk of the car. And I said, get your bass back out. We got to get this song down. <laughs> the next morning we were cutting a B side for these arms of mine. Hey baby, or whatever it was called. And I, Johnny played guitar on it. And I played piano on, on these arms of mine. And that's Johnny Jenkins playing guitar. <laughs> A lot of people don't know that either. They think it's me. And it's, I, it's, I don't care what they think. It's, it is what it is. If they read a book or tell a story, I tell a story and I tell it now that it was Johnny Jenkins who played guitar on that and I play piano. You don't play piano. I said, I know that I don't play piano. <laughs> okay. Ultimately, after Otis passes, uh, Doc of the Bay comes out. Okay. Now, if one listens to Doc of the Bay, you can hear the fingers on the strings. You know what I'm talking about? No, I don't. I play guitar on. I play both guitars on that record. I know, but you know, maybe it's you know when you heard it the on the whistling or the, on the acoustic. I never, I never noticed that. You can hear, you know, if you're a guitar player, you can hear the fingers moving on the strings. You didn't used to hear it on the radio, but on every, you know, it's not that hmm. subtle. Well. When we get through today, I'll go listen to it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Explain what it was. Okay. Now, at this point in time, you have a number of successes. Los Angeles is just starting to build up as a recording center. You certainly have New York. You have Nashville. And then Muscle Shoals is starting to become a thing. To what degree did you know these other guys or compete with these other guys? Or are you just in your own world? I didn't. That was Al Bell's idea to farm stuff out. So he had already started farming uh, sessions out. Washington, D.C., Chicago, L.A., and Muscle Shoals. Now, Jerry was already aware of it. And what happened with Jerry Wexler, who was president of, of, of Atlantic Records, uh, he knew that these guys at Muscle Shoals were cutting some good records. 
So when Jim Stewart decided no more outside recording, I said, Jim, I'm just on a roll with Wilson Pickett. You know, we've had three hits in a row here. And he said, like I said, Steve, no outside recording. I went, oh. So maybe that was the start of the downfall. I have no idea. I don't know. I wasn't that upset about it, but I was a little upset. We still had a lot going on. <laughs> and um, what we did after the uh, Stax Volt tour, everybody wanted to be their own producer. They wanted to go on, the, uh, instead of saying produced by staff, they wanted it produced by whoever was in charge of the session. So that's what we did. And sister, go ahead. Okay. Now, as years are going by, it's kind of like the internet 20 odd years ago, there's an incredible advancement in recording technology. We go from one to two to four to eight to 16 to 24 tracks. We have boards with multiple channels. To what degree was Stax keeping up with that? And to what degree being a guitar player and being a, you know, a gearhead, to what degree were you up to speed on all that stuff? Uh, technically, I'm not sure we were up to speed. We were always behind everybody in technology. Now, the thing about Atlantic was way ahead of the game. They had an eight track. There were two in the world, and they had one of them. <laughs> so uh, that's what they did. And they, when I say they, uh, I should say that Motown brought in Diana Ross. They brought the Four Seasons in, different things, to do those hand claps and that, that great sound that made everybody want to dance. They would dub it down on eight track at Atlantic and put all that stuff on it. And Tom Dow, being a good friend, taught me how to, he did a lot of that stuff. And a lot of the hand claps were done with uh, metal flanges from the reels because they were more metallic and they sounded more like uh, they just sounded better. Well, 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 a little bit slower. How were they done with the reels and the metal flanges? Well, if you took a reel apart, you got this round metal flange. You get two of them together and clap them oh, together. Oh, and you do oh, that. I see what you're saying. I, I thought there was You, you mix that with hands, and it sounds like a million hands going on. It's not. And the other thing is, uh, Cherry was a board over a broom handle. <laughs> One guy with two flanges clapping and doing his feet back and forth. And if you marked it properly, you get this big chat sound, and they used to do all that. And what were you using for reverb? It stacks. We had our own uh, echo chamber. It, originally, it was used bathroom that had these old uh, black and white tiles, hex tiles, just like all the bathrooms. And Jim says that was the uh, girls' bathroom. It might have been. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but one of them was taken up for the record shop, and the other one was still over there. And uh, there was a guy, there is a guy here in town that's doing a book on recording studios. And he said, how did you send the signal over? I knew that re return of the echo was on the eighth pot so of two Ampex mixers. So it was on one side or the other. There was no, we didn't have any pan pots in those days. And you could have split the signal. But Jim, I said, maybe you need to ask Jim that. Jim couldn't remember how we said it either. And Welter Jatan, who built all of that, is gone. So he's not around to ask anymore. We know about the return. We don't know how it was sent over there. So were you always kind of a producer or how did you decide you were going to become a producer? <laughs> well, the way I became a producer, there was no one else to do the job. And I have been asked in the past, how come there's only one guitar on those sessions? Because we couldn't afford a second guitar player. That's why. <laughs> Pretty simple. And uh, 
my job at Stacks as a producer and all that while we're on that subject. Mrs. Axton, I had a job at the record shop. And she went to Jim Stewart one day and said, you're going to start paying Steve because he's spending more time in the studio than he is at the record shop. So they came up with a deal and Jim started paying me. And, okay, you talk about when everybody becomes an independent producer. At what point do you disconnect from Stacks? September 1970. <laughs> well, it must have been a big event if you remember exactly when it was. I remember the day, I remember the, day the time, the date, and everything. Yeah, I do. So what happened? I don't remember the whole week, but I remember that day. Well, I was told I couldn't get out. That you can't leave Stacks, you know. Yeah, I can I'm gone. Bye. No, you can't leave Stacks. So I went to Al Bell, who was by then pre vice president of the label. And I went to Al. I said, Al, I'm not happy here anymore. I want to go. He said, Steve, if you want out, I'll help you get out. I said, okay. <laughs> and he did. And we got out. I'd already told Jim. I said, I'll get my lawyer. I'm going to get out of this studio. I've got to go. And uh, there was a great transition transition to go from Stax to TMI. They had been working on the studio for a long time. And the owner and uh, one of my best friends, our, our lead singer in our band, who did a lot of artwork and album covers and all that for Stax, had been working with this guy for a long time. And they come and got me out of bed one night and said, we're going to show you something. <laughs> and so they showed me that. And they said, this is yours if you want it. That was TMI. It was a great studio. And... Uh, that did, I mean, that helped, but it didn't really entice me to leave Stacks. That's not why I left Stacks. What I did tell Al and, uh, and Jim Stewart, I'm not going to leave Stacks and going across the street in competition with you. I'm not doing that. I'm going to make different kind of music. I'm not going to make R&B music anymore. And so Al says, well, I've got this artist I need you to do. You've already agreed to do it. And uh, he said, you're doing real good with Eddie Floyd. You're not going to stop doing that. So uh, I recorded them at TMI. Okay, couple a couple of questions here. Go. One, online it says you were an A&R guy for Stacks. Is that accurate? Yeah. So did you ever sign things, or are we talking about it was so loose, someone come in and you say, hey, this is a good guy? Well, I, I, no, I don't think I ever signed anybody. Uh, it happened, most of it by accident. I, I can tell you this, I don't ever remember telling uh, somebody becoming famous that I said, I listened to and said, ah, oh, they're not going to happen. That never happened as far as I can remember. So you have great ears. So how did you decide you weren't going to make R&B music anymore? Well, I knew I couldn't get out if I said I was going across the street doing competition. <laughs> <laughs> so at this I point. I guess following the footsteps of Lincoln Wayne Mormon, Chips Bowman. He started doing, uh, he did the Sweet Inspirations. He did uh, King Curtis, Elvis, and uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, a bunch of guys, you know. He did Neil, Neil uh, Sadaka, not Neil Sadaka, who is Neil? Uh, Diamond. Diamond. So you go, at this point in time, not only is the Memphis Sound famous, not only is Stax famous, you are individually famous. And the way people read the credits on the records in depth, so I would assume from around the world, people are contacting you. They want to work with you. Okay. Is that what happened when you uh, went to work Pretty at TMI? Much, yeah. 
pretty much the thing. The thing is, I left TMI, made a production deal with Columbia Records. I didn't leave TMI. I left Stax and, and made a deal with uh, Columbia Records. And at the time, Clive Davis was president. And he kind of took me in and he wanted to make sure that, you know, I was on his team and I was. <laughs> so I did a lot of, uh, I think the first artist he sent me was a band called Dreams. Very successful with that. Then we did Jeff Beck. Okay, okay, <laughs> wait, wait. Forget whatever his personality is. And one-on-one, -on -one, he's not really the public personality anyway. But of all of them, we'll leave you out of this because we're talking. I consider Beck to be the best. Better than Hendrix, better than Jimmy Page. As I say, not the greatest songwriter, but in terms of player, unbelievable. So what did well, you think of working with Jeff Beck, also being a guitar player? It was a treat, big treat. The thing I could say about Jeff as a guitar player, I would watch him. I would sit next to him and I'd go, you know, I'm not the world's worst guitar player, but I know you can't get that there in that position. He did. Whatever was in his head, he just played. The thing about Jeff is that as his career went, as he got older, he got better, 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 better except he'll never top going down. That's one of the best versions that's ever been done, I think. Going down, down. Oh, believe down. me, I know it. Fantastic. And I think uh, Bobby Tench, I didn't know at the time when I was producing Bobby that he was a great rock guitar player. I had no idea that he played guitar. I just knew him as a good singer. And um, it was a Jeff Beck group, they called it, I think, at the time. Yeah. Max Bilton played piano, Cozy Powell played drums, and... Clive Chamberlain played the uh, bass and Bobby Tent sang. And Jeff played that incredible guitar. <laughs> wow. I mean, I think the album as a whole was pretty Yankee. I don't think Jeff was very proud of the album, but he's got to be proud of going down. That is amazing. So what was your production technique? How involved were you? Were you the type of guy who would rearrange, type of guy who changed the songs? Were you the type of the guy who would just sit behind the board and not interfere too much? I have no idea. But I do know this. I have told many people, if I knew what made me who I am, I'd bottle it and give it to everybody. I have no idea. I was just there at the time, and it worked. The thing I say about producers, you got to be able to hear something finished. You can't just get lucky and, and stair-step it and get lucky each time you do something. you got to hear it finished. And you work to that goal, I think. Now, another band you work with that was on Epic, but part of the whole uh, CBS Enterprise, was Poco. That, okay. It, it doesn't seem like anything could be further from your wheelhouse than Poco. Right. And recently, I got to see Richie Ferrer again for the first time since Poco. And Timothy, I have seen. You know, he's out with the Eagles now. Right. And I knew his talent. I don't know whatever happened to Paul Cotton. The only hit out of that album that I did was Railroad Days by Paul Cotton. And I think Richie knows that. And Richie Ferrer at the time was the writer. And they had just split up. Him and right. uh, Jim Cena had split up. And uh, he had split up with his wife as well. He was writing all these great love songs. But that's all it was, was love songs. And I don't think Poco was known for love songs. So I, I told uh, Clive that, okay, he'd put the album out anyway. And, you know, we had Railroad Days. It's number one record. It was pretty good. But that was all we had out of that. And another thing happened with uh, Looking Glass, I think, with Elliot Laurie and Looking Glass. And so uh, I'm up in New York at the time. And they said, we got this group. We want you to go here. 
So I did. And I came back the next day, and I'm sitting down with Clive. He said, well, do they have any hits? I said, they got one, Brandy. He said, well, let's take them down to Memphis. You cut them and see what you're doing. So he called me about four days into the session. He said, how's it going? I said, it's going pretty good. He says, uh, you got any hits? I said, one, Brandy. He said, well, send them back to New York then. And so uh, they, I don't know, they think I had something to do with it. I had nothing to do with that, with them going back. But here's what they did. They got an engineer to work for nothing. They went in at midnight or late in the evening and uh, recorded Brandy the same way we did and had a number one record with it. Wow. Great. I'm proud of, proud of them. I heard that in, in Woodstock. I heard them do it Brandy. And it was a hit then. It's still a hit. That's a great song. I hear it on the radio. I go, man, that was a hit. <laughs> so okay. So how long? You know, needlessly, Clive gets blown out of CBS. Uh, and how long does it last for you with TMI? What's the next step for you? Well, uh, the guy that signed us to Columbia. I won't mention his name. It doesn't matter. Um, he was. Uh, booted out of Columbia because of indifferences or something. I think what it was, he was part owner of a building. They were keeping their records in as a, as a wherever storage place. He couldn't do that. So the guy I was in partnership with came to me one day and said, we're moving over to RCA. So I wound up doing uh, three records on Jose's Feliciano and some other stuff. And in during that transition time, I did a, a little record. My name's not on there, but I still produced it was Tower of Power, Bump City. <laughs> Down to the nightclub, still a young man and all those records. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. The problem was they got busted about two or three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that we were friends with the police, they didn't, they just turned them loose back in the studio, whatever. So when it came time to do his second album, they said, we're not coming back to Memphis. And I said, well, I'm not going out to Oakland. I went out there later and rode with Steve, the baritone player. He was the writer. And, uh, you know, we hit it off real good and all that sort of stuff. But the rest of the band, we, we, we hit it off tremendously. All good friends. But I wouldn't go to Frisco to cut them and they wouldn't come to LA. I mean, to, to Nashville. So I'm Memphis, I mean. And, uh, that's where we ended it right there. So you did bumps, you did down in the nightclub, Bump City. Yeah. Skating on thin ice and all those records. Unbelievable record. Unbelievable record. Okay. So at any point in this game, do you feel in the 70s that, hey, you've had a lot of success? B, you want to walk away? C, are you still on a roll? You fear where you are in the game? Are you thinking about any of that stuff? No. The thing is that uh, what I look back on my career, I spent over nine years in the studio and 50-something years on the road. <laughs> so uh, they say, what do you like the best? I said, I don't, it doesn't matter. If I'm on stage, I'm having a great time. If I'm in the studio, I'm having a great time. So it doesn't matter. But when you can make, make a living out of having fun, that's the best thing. That's, now I understand, I've always understood why sports guys, who get paid a lot of money to do to play the same game they've been playing since they were kids. Ain't nothing wrong with that. <laughs> no, except it ends at some point where as a musician, if you're good, you can continue to you play. You can go to you, you have the God takes you away, right? <laughs> okay. Now working with all these people, you have a unique guitar style. Did it ever 
change your guitar style being having all these other influences? No, I don't think so. But I, you know, I listen to the radio every now and then. I go, hey, I play pretty good on that. I don't remember half of it. I don't. And then at this point, you know, you're you're in the pantheon in that era. Does it end up that you end up meeting everybody? Like obviously you're working with Jeff Beck. Do you you know pretty you close. know? <laughs> pretty close. That's the scary part, I think. I've met almost everybody that's anybody. Whether they're comedians or actors or whatever, I've met them all. Presidents, I played for four of them, and <laughs> you know. And I would like to thank Bill Clinton and I were pretty good friends at one time. How'd you become friends with Bill Clinton? Well, you don't. I mean, he you he takes you on. You don't take him on. You might accept him as, as a person, but if if he's standing at the end of the stage or in the dressing room waiting on the dressing room for you to get off stage, you got a pretty good idea. He likes you. <laughs> And obviously, you know, you come from adjoining states, but what would you talk to Bill Clinton about? Music. Really? Yeah. And would he ever call? Definitely, definitely didn't talk about girls or the state. We'd talk about music. <laughs> well, I wasn't fishing <laughs> for that. But would he, ever, would he ever call you on the phone and say, hey, Steve? No. No. So what did you- But in the Oval Office, he said, you know, I remember where I was the day I heard Green Onions. I mean, not Green Onions, but the Dock of the Bay. He was in a pub in England, he told me, as I'm walking over to be. So what did you learn about famous people? Well, I'll tell you this. There's only three guys in my career that could light up a room just by walking into it. Elvis was one of them. Bill Clinton was another one. And Roy Orbison was the third one. They walk in, every head would turn, every conversation would just stop. Then it'd go back to where it was. And that's what he did. And you're making this R&B music in Memphis. What did you think about the uh, British invasion sound, the Beatles and who came thereafter, then ultimately Clapton and Beck, and then you had the San Francisco sound, and then ultimately the folk rock from Los Angeles? Was that something that interested you, or you were saying, well, I'm just doing what I'm doing? I would say I'm doing what I'm doing, and uh, I'm I'm okay at that. I'll just stick with what I got that's successful. Why venture out and try to do something? Else? I don't know. A lot of people do. Okay, let, let's talk about another legendary moment. Okay, I remember going to see Lemmings off Broadway, becoming aware of John Belushi and Chevy Chase in the fall of 75. SNL goes on. Aykroyd and Belushi start this crazy thing with the Blues Brothers. Y you know, for me, and talking to you now, it's a little different. It's like, you know, I said, how the fuck does, you know, Steve Cropper have time to say, okay, I'm going to pick up. I'm going to go on the road with these guys. I mean, <laughs> how did all that happen? What was going through your mind? Well, okay. I don't know. It's kind of weird. But <laughs> I'll tell you the connection. So Belushi happened to be at a New Year's Eve gig that we played with Levon Helm in New York. And he said, if I ever put a band together, I want that band. And then he got the opportunity. Steve Martin asked him to open up some shows for him. So Steve said uh, that's when Steve Martin had King Tut. His connection with Saturday Night Live he was a writer for Saturday Night Live. So he knew them very well. So uh, he comes to John and he says, I want you guys to open for me. He said, they insist that I have an opening act and I want you guys to do it rather than use some local band, you know. 
And John says, well, you know, Danny and I don't do stand-up comedy. He said, I don't care what you do. He said, John says, good. Can we play music? He said, if you want to play music, play music. That's when he started putting the band together. <laughs> so I get a call from him. I'm, I'm working on Robin Ford's album. Great guitar player. <laughs> and I have this thing when I'm mixing or working on somebody, and we were mixing the album at the time, no calls, except one guy who might want to take me to lunch. He, he was worked for the publishing company that I was with. At, I wasn't with them, but uh, they had some of my the old songs. And uh, I said, if he calls, it's okay. And he would always call and say, I'm President so-and-so, or this is Stevie Wonder, or he'd come up with a name. So when I said, John Belushi's on the phone for you, I hung up. On the third time, I hung up again the second time. On the third time, he said, don't hang up. It's really John Belushi. <laughs> the thing is, I had met him before at a Paul McCartney party. <laughs> and we talked for a long time about music, about different things. And uh, he was there. Paul had hired him to do that uh, Joe Cocker thing that he used to do. And uh, anyway, he said, don't hang up. And then he said, I understand you don't get along with Duck Dunn very well. <laughs> And so I really laughed it, but I knew that wasn't my friend. It had to be John Belushi. And he said, no, he said, really? He said, I've already talked to Duck and Duck's going to come up and play. He said, I need you up there. I said, I'm in the middle of mixing a record. I can't do it. So he said, you can't do it. I said, man, I can't do it. I can't be up there tomorrow. I can't do it. So when I hung up with John, Robin was sitting in the couch below the console. He stands up. He says, I'll do it. I said, no, you, no, you won't. <laughs> he did. He said, I'll do it. I said, no, you won't. <laughs> so I talked to Bruce Robb, who was an engineer on the, on the job. And I said, uh, can we do what you've done before with, uh, with, uh, with the, what's his name from uh, Atlantic, Jerry Wexler. And I said, can you mix it and send me the mixes and I'll okay him and tell you this and that. And he said, yeah. So, well, I think we had two left. It was going to be, so I called uh, Belushi back and I said, if you can wait two or three days, I'll be up there. And uh, he said, okay, I'll wait on you. So he did. <laughs> and that's how it all got started. So uh, the other thing, the reason Duck and I are in the band, at the time we had done two albums and two world tours with Levon Helm and the Saturday Night Live horns with a horn back at horns. And uh, so Belushi goes to Tom Malone he was a trombone player at that time and the director of the Saturday Night Live Horns and or the band. And he said, uh, you know, we're going to open these shows for Steve Martin. Do you want to take the whole Saturday Night Live band or what should we do? And he said, you need to get done and Cropper because they're old road dogs. I don't know where he got that from. But anyway, that's how we got to be part of it. Thanks to Tom Malone. Okay. But then it turns into a phenomenon. There ends yeah. up being multiple records, so, you know, know, tours with just the Blues Brothers. There's a movie. You know, was that all a fun ride, or did it get old? It's the most fun you'd have in life, I guess. It was pre pretty fun, yeah. And uh, we had no idea that first album would do anything. It went triple platinum right off the bat. Now it's all the way up to quadruple platinum, four, four million sales. At the time it came out, two and a half, three million sales, which I think is the, the stepping stone, the one thing that allowed Atlanta to put a little more pressure on Universal to do a movie. Because they had turned Danny down before on the idea of doing a Blues Brothers movie. Okay. I got an email from Tivin, and he said, you got to ask Steve some questions that no one's ever asked him. So he sent me a <laughs> few, and I'm going to ask him. What about these phone calls with Bob Dylan? <laughs> I ain't going to go there. But anyway, I got a call from Bob, and I got a call from 
somebody that worked for Bob and said, Bob is going to call you in 10 minutes. And he did. <laughs> and it, I, I, I just assumed he wanted me to be in his band. I don't know if I'd have done it or not. And he never did say I want you to be in the band. <laughs> he never gave me the opportunity to turn him down. So, so did he want to talk music or just talk? Well, he, he got on the phone. And he said, Cropper, I had you in my mind. He must have said that 20 times. Cropper, <laughs> I had you in my mind. Okay. What? I had you in my mind. <laughs> That's all he said. Finally hung up after about 10 minutes. He kept saying that and then hung up. And that was the end of that. And never heard from him again. No. But he's a good friend. And what about working with John Lennon? Well, the thing about that is that it was pretty crazy session. But uh, I stayed. And so John said, are you going to stay for the next song? I said, absolutely. He said, can you stay after the next song? Because I came up with a riff that I always thought would be good for Booker D and MGs. I said, sure. So it's after everybody cleared out, it's just John Lennon and myself in the studio. And he gets a guitar. It passes me his bottle of vodka, which I thought was water all day long. No, it was really vodka. <laughs> Holy mackerel. He could handle it. So he plays me this riff. It's pretty good. So I take it back short to my band at TMI. And we made a little record, recorded it, sent it to his secretary. And one day by accident, they said, John Lennon's new record is out. And that was Imagine. Well, whoever put the record in a jukebox put it in upside down. So the B-side played first. I said, that's that instrumental. I said, riff. So if you want to pick it up, it's called Beef Jerky. He cut it in New York. <laughs> now, are you, as I say, you've met essentially everybody. Anybody ever intimidate you? Do you get uptight meeting people or John nope. Lennon, just another musician? Well, John Lennon was John Lennon, but, uh, you know, I'd met him before. I bet all three, uh, but uh, the only guy that wasn't uh, there at the time in, in uh, what was it, 70, no, 66, the Stax Folk Tour, they were at the Bag of Nails and we were down there rehearsing for the show. And uh, the only guy that wasn't there was George, the guitar player. He's the only one that wasn't there. It's crazy. But Ringo and Paul and, and John were there. Pretty crazy. The thing about that is that they respected us so much. They sent a rolls to pick us up in red carpet. Wow. That was pretty nice of them to do that. And you also <laughs> played with Keith Richards? Yeah. <laughs> What's the smile and joke there? Well, it's the same thing you just said a while ago. You, you, I don't want to admit that, uh, you know, I just treat everybody equal. And I've always done that. You are who you are. I mean, I ain't taking anything away from you. But if you want to be special, you're going to have to be special. Okay, I think I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, you just take all these people with a grain of salt. So you're playing for a president. Well, you just treat him like a regular guy, and he loves it. They always love it. If you bow down to him right off the bat and treat them like bigger than God, oh, it's not going to happen. I know. That's what I tell you. You want to talk to famous people, first thing you do, first rule is don't ever talk to them about what they're famous about. <laughs> right. Ask them about, you know, all this other stuff. And you were working with Jeff Beck and Stevie Wonder sent a demo. Yeah. So <laughs> the Jeff Beck story. Superstitious. So they want me to hear this song that Stevie Wonder has written for Jeff Beck. So I, we get to Electric Lady Studios, and Stevie says, put it up, put it up. Tells the engineer, put it up, put it up. He puts it up. 
So while it's playing, it's superstition. I lean over and I said, Stevie, put horns on that and put it out. <laughs> <laughs> really? I did, uh, yeah, I did just say that. Put horns on it and put it out. And is that exactly, was that the version with horns that came out? Yeah. So you're but responsible. It, 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 so you're it, responsible it, for Beck not getting it. Maybe. But I heard Beck. So Stevie calls him up to sit in one night, and I said, now I finally get it. I understand <laughs> why he wrote that for Jeff Beck. Good God of money. Yeah. But that was a couple of years ago that I heard it for the first time. Heard Jeff play it for the first time. Okay. A lot of time has gone by. You still eager to go on the road? You still eager to play? Uh, well, that's hard to say if I ever did. I think you asked me that similar question before. I'm not sure I was ever hang. I, I have a longing to go fishing and a longing to play golf, but I don't have a longing to play music. I do it if I'm called upon, and I will say this. They don't pay you to play. They pay you to carry luggage to an airport. But when, about two hours you're on stage, man, that's the best fun you can have. And, uh, you know, I'm also one of those guys. I don't, I enjoy playing to be playing, but I, I, I don't enjoy playing for two people. <laughs> 2,000 I might enjoy. 200,000 I really enjoy. <laughs> I understand the concept there too. And uh, you keep up with popular music? No. Because... You've been through too much or you don't like it? <laughs> I think I know the difference. In terms of I know what's a hit and what's not. If it's good enough to make my hair stand up, it's good. If it doesn't, it ain't. <laughs> what it's are, what are a few records you were not involved with that made your hair stand up? Mm, that's a good question. I never thought of it that way. But I'm, I, I can think of a few probably. I don't know. I really don't know. Okay. And to what degree are you a gearhead? A what? A gearhead? I'm not a gearhead. How, how many guitars you own? Way too many. You only play one at a time. Right. So <laughs> that's why I'm asking. How many How many you own? Well, I play the same guitar. I've been playing one. I retired one after 14 years. And of the one I'm playing presently, I've been playing close to 10 years now. Why'd you retire the first one? Uh, it needed to be refretted. Okay. <laughs> and what model is this? Well, it's it's a Telecaster, but it's made by PV, called the Generation Series. Very versatile guitar. People said, why did you pick up the Telecaster? Because it's the most versatile guitar on the planet. You can make it do about anything. If you want to play rock, you can hit a switch and make it play rock. If you want to play R&B, you can play R&B. You want to play chinks, just backbeats? It's it's the only guitar in the world that's built for backbeats, I think. Because the other one, you hit you hit a six a six note chord, it's going to distort. A Telecaster doesn't. What about a Stratocaster? A lot of the English musicians played Stratocasters or less. Yeah, they have a different sound. It's a different pickup setup. And and the other thing is that I play with my palm of my hand muted on the bridge. No matter who makes a guitar, that's where it is. So on a Strat, it will take the pick out of my hand in two beats because of middle pickup. So I have several custom-made Strats with no middle pickup. Really? <laughs> yeah. And what about amps? Well, that's different. Uh, I will give you a little secret on picking the best electric guitar. 
play it acoustically. If it sounds good acoustically, you can find an amp to marriage with it to make it sound really good. Even a solid body like the Telecaster. Yeah. And how about effects? How about effects? Well, it depends. I don't use a lot of effects. Never did. That's not my sound. And uh, tremolo, yeah. Booker T, I have a tremulator, a simulator thing that makes it vibrate. Um, the old uh, Super Reverbs had one vibrato in it. Right. The one I'm playing now, the amp does not have one in it. So I have to use it outboard. Okay. J- just to get a little deeper, Fender had tubes. Then they went to transistors. We have Marshalls. Are you a guy who says, well, transistors, tubes, totally different sound. You got to have the right amp. Maybe. The best amp I ever had had both. One side was uh, tubes and the other side was, you know, just regular, whatever they do, the new technology. Uh, That amp I don't have anymore. What amp was that? It was a PV amp. Okay. Do you like when people call you the Colonel or not like it? Doesn't matter. My nickname is Crop Dog. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Let's go back to the beginning. Back in the very beginning, did they call you Steve or did they call you Cropper? I think Steve in the beginning. Okay. How far back are you going? To stacks. Well, before that, in high school, we had a formula that we used. So I was Saucy, son of Hollis Cropper. Now, some of it works, some of it doesn't, but Tom Dowd always called me Saucy, S-A-U-C-Y, <laughs> because he thought that's what it was. But right, right. S-O-H-C, Saucy. Okay, if you were Saucy, did everybody else have an equivalent nickname? Yeah. Wow, that's definitely thinking. I mean, it was always the son of whatever their dad was. Some of it worked and some of it didn't. Okay, so th- then you get to Stax, what's your name? Creeper. <laughs> Why is it that? I don't know, because that's what uh, Eddie Floyd called me. Creepster. <laughs> Creeper, Creepster. Is that because you crept along or he creeped you out? I don't know why up? he came up with that, but he did. <laughs> you know, his nickname is Tree from from wood, wood of a tree. Right. So everybody calls him Tree. <laughs> <laughs> and then how did you become the colonel? And then, uh, I don't know, that. Uh, well, the horns gave me that in in Japan, and they don't even remember it, but I do. Uh, so Eddie Floyd called me also Stevie. Instead of Stevie Wonder, they call me Stevie Blunder. <laughs> <laughs> Did you make any? And I remember Eddie Floyd used to say, you know, if you look at this, Steve, he's one, he said, you can't see him. He said, if he turns sideways, you can't find him. <laughs> and- I was skinny in those days, I guess. I don't know. And what about Crumpster? What's that all about? I have no idea. <laughs> well, do you, do your friends call you Crumpster? I'm trying to think now, since you asked me the, the question, no, they don't. I'm trying to think what uh, John Belushi called me other than uh, Cropper. Most of the guys just say the last name Cropper. And then when you were, was Belushi funny in real in regular life? Yeah, the thing about Belushi was he never turned down a fan, ever. If there was two guys or 200 guys, he would stay there till it was over with, and that was it. And uh, 
when I was hanging with him in New York and L.A., people would jump over cars and jump in front of cars or whatever if he was across the street, hanging out the windows, yelling and screaming and all that kind of stuff. Wow. And Roy Orbison, they did the same thing with Roy. And I'm going, <laughs> I hope I never become that famous. I guess I, I haven't. <laughs> and how's your health? So far, so good. So hopefully you'll be around for another 20 years. Steve, this has been wonderful. There's so many <laughs> stories I'd still want to hear, but I think we've come to the end of the feeling for today. Thanks so much for doing this. You better. Anytime, man. Okay, till next time, this is Bob Left Sense. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com.